My sermon this morning is going to be a little different. Um, I will not be addressing a specific text this morning, but rather a theme. You're probably already a little confused because on Pentecost, we just read the Magnificat. So I'm off lectionary. I'm not preaching on a passage. You're probably a little concerned at this point. I've given a horrible introduction. Um, you can get your refund on the way out if you're disturbed by that. But let me, uh, <laughs> let me dig in. I do want to acknowledge Pentecost, though. Um, even in our collect this morning, you'll see a word in here that's going to pop up, uh, not infrequently. Um, the collect was, O oh God, who on this day taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Our hearts were taught. So while I'm not preaching from a Pentecost text this morning, the theme will not focus specifically on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is essential to what I want to explore today. Today, uh, we are going to be initiating an activity, which I hope you'll all participate in over the course of the summer. It's not too difficult. It's really just to volunteer to share a meal together with a few others in our church family during the next few months to share stories of encountering God together in a specific way that we'll model for you today. That's what I want to talk about. It's the act of sharing together about encountering God in a specific way. And I'll share more about that momentarily. Of course, the theme of every sermon ought to be the gospel in some way. The gospel is like a prism. The light of Christ beams into it, but it disperses its ray, its rays into many colors. And each color, though distinct, is a reflection of that same gospel. So those colors may and should include topics that range from individual experience to corporate unity to mission to the recreation of the world in the last day, but all united around God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, the king, the gospel. So the gospel ought to be, on the one hand, understood, and on the other hand, it ought to be experienced. Those are two distinct but very essential aspects of personal encounter. The content of the gospel and the experience of the gospel course those are integrated in our our lives and this morning's theme addresses just one or two of the colors of the gospel light this morning I want to talk about experiential knowledge of course you could just say knowledge but in the old way of talking about things that was just understood that knowledge was experiential so that one word captured both of those facets Often today, we're kind of split. We differentiate knowledge and experience. And so we have to say experiential knowledge to say twice what used to be said once. This sort of experiential knowledge is akin to feeling, knowledge that is gained by experience. Another word I could describe that sort of knowing is it's relational. It's based on an encounter. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, when he says, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. It's kind of what he's trying to find words for as well. 
This sort of relational knowing is the integration of data and experience. This is sort of knowing that emerges through encountering a person over time. The facts are there, but the facts only come to life in the encounter. And of course, the analogies here are just so numerous. I first learned about Rebecca from a high school friend. She told me all about her, and I looked her up in our yearbook, which was because I grew up before the internet. <laughs> And uh, when I saw her picture, I was really impressed. But it was only when I met her for the first time that the data came to life. And I was actually riveted from that very first moment when I heard her voice. And I saw something almost inexplicably rich in her eyes that captured my attention from that moment until now. And knowing Rebecca has been a journey ever since that very first moment, and it's taken shape within the contours of our shared experience together. Wow. I was inspired when I wrote that. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I know all the guys are thinking, man, he forgot something or he did something wrong. Um, <laughs> knowing of this sort, and this is a key point, it's essential for developing our sense of identity. Knowing of this sort is essential for developing our sense of identity. In fact, a baby can only come to know herself as one who is being known by her parents. That's how identity is formed. The moment after my son Nathan was born, he was placed on Rebecca's chest, and he craned his neck up, and he peered into our faces, looking back and forth into each of our eyes. I did not even know that newborns could do that. It was like primordial discovery for all of us, like encountering the world for the first time. I wondered what he saw in me at that moment. I've always wondered what he... <laughs> Two souls so intimately joined in that moment as father and son, and yet so unknown to each other, so new, so open. I had the privilege of presiding over Nathan's marriage just a few weeks ago. And so I was standing there, and as he and Sarah stepped forward in front of me at the beginning of the service, and Nathan peered up into my eyes, it felt like I was connected back to that very first moment. I was so full of love, so full of gratitude. I, his father, able to bless him, and he, my son, the apple of my eye. This is how we come to know each other and how we know God. God is not an idea. He is a person. He became a human in flesh and in experience so that each person may know not just the idea of God, but may know him as their own and in knowing him to know themselves. What that means is that each of us has a unique story to tell. Scripture is in fact the story of God and people coming to know each other and in this way. People had a lot to learn. People had to learn over time that God exists, 
that God is a certain kind of God with unique attributes, that there's a big problem between us that we can't fix, that, but that he could fix and that he did fix and that there's a point and purpose to things. Nobody knew that until God showed it to them by experience over time. How on earth, pun intended, would God convey all that? Well, it took time and it took the unfolding of these things through the cultivation of relationships with actual people where God's existence and his nature and his purpose could be disclosed and shaped. God chose Israel to do this work and to create a people whose identity was shaped by their uneven encounter with God. A hallmark of forming and strengthening this kind of identity is the role of memory. We're still on the theme of identity formation here. And we're talking about the role of memory in crafting and enriching that identity. Israel was told to remember God's actions explicitly. They were told to remember that those actions at home, at worship, and in telling and in teaching, in singing, in celebrating festivals together. It was individual and it was also corporate. They were to remember. Remember is to remember, to put members back together again in a certain shape and form with specific detail. And God gave very specific instructions for us and he also modeled it. If you'll call, uh, recall in our uh, readings from Deuteronomy. Well, first let me, there's a, a good quote in Deuteronomy 15, 15. God says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's Deuteronomy 15, 15. This memory was rehearsed by Israel in their fellowship and in their worship in Passover. And it had a profound impact on how they treated their neighbors. Their experience with God transformed their understanding of who they were and who others were, and they talked about this a lot. God also rehearsed this history. God also remembered, sharing it with his people in vivid detail, rich with metaphors, drawing upon the strongest of bonds shared between a parent and an infant. This from our reading this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10. God says of his people, he found him in a desert and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Pinions are part of a bird's wing. It's a tender and beautiful and striking memory. Let's emphasize a few important details here. First of all, memory is retelling. Israel isn't only told to remember a formula or a creed, but an event, a drama, a narrative. Likewise, God is remembering an era, a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's honest, yet it's selective. Certain things are especially important in the retelling of the story. So memory is retelling. Memory is meaningful. It is told with symbolic richness, emotional engagement, concreteness. 
It's not just data. It's vivid. It's specific. It's passionate. This isn't history per se. It's not reporting. It's a way of encountering one's history. Memory is meaningful. Memory is shared. It's remembering. It's putting members back together. It's putting the story back together of ourselves as we become integrated into it. It's recollecting. It's taking the collection and recollecting it. It's regathering. It's regrouping. It's shared together. It's amplified in the telling of it as it's shared in our community. This sort of remembering shapes who we are. It shapes our identity. We're learning what it means to be us as we tell the story together. This is a process, and that's why it's meant to be repetitive and corporate across Israel's households and in her gathered temple worship through the corporate psalms. Here's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. These words that I command you today shall be in your heart, God says. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's when and how you communicate your heart language. Here's an example of Israel's corporate psalm together of remembering. Psalm 102, verses 18 through 22. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That's us. That he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. That's like remembering the future. You see how your identity is shaped in these things and it casts out a wide net. What I want to ask us today is this. Have we learned to engage with God and each other in this way? Is it our habit to intentionally tell the story of our lives with God in these multifaceted ways, such as to ourselves so that we know our own stories? Do we tell them to God in prayer and thanksgiving and in worship? Do we tell them to each other as an expression of praise and encouragement and prayer? Do we tell the world as we align our lives with a movement of the kingdom around us? There's so much more to be said about the power of remembering and retelling our encounter with God. We could say so much more about this. Neurologically, our brains are actually integrating all of this. This is how we know ourselves. All of us have what are, what are called implicit and explicit memories. Implicit memories are the ones that we can't recall. They're pre-verbal. They're things that happen to us that are just in us, but we know them. Explicit memories are what we can bring to our minds consciously. Implicit memories are based on past experiences. Explicit memories are what we can interpret. Our implicit memories were shaped long before we developed language to describe them. And this interplay between what we experienced and what we consciously remember has a deep impact on how we feel and how we act, on how we engage others. 
These implicit memories form what are called like mental models. Mental models are a way of describing what happens in our brains when experiences shape all the neural pathways into a sort of consistency that affects our behavior. I'll give you an example. If every time my father calls me by name, it's followed by scolding, that forms a mental model. Steve, scolding. All right, that's an implicit memory. I may not even know that's the way it was. It's just formed a neural rut in my mind. Um, therefore, when my spouse calls me by name and I, you know, and she says, Steve, what do I automatically expect? I expect to be scolded, even if that's not her intent. Because my mental model is Steve scold. If any time anybody calls me by name, I am to be reprimanded. What happens when I read in the Bible that the first thing that Jesus says in his ascended, in his risen body, he says, Mary. How would you read that Bible verse if you were giving your reading this morning? Would you say, Mary, you dummy? Or would you say, Mary? It, that, that voice of recognition, do you see how that implicit memory brings forward your, your, your encounter with other people? Way in the back of all of this is that in our earliest experiences and relationships, they were not just unmitigated successes. We were and are sinful people. And sin is inherently a relational problem. We sin against God. We sin against each other. The very epicenter of our identity, beautiful and created in God's image and precious to him, is also the location of our deepest problems, our own sin and the sin we have experienced from others. That's why information alone won't save us. The gospel has to be understood, yes, and it also has to be experienced. Neurologist and Christian Kurt Thompson says it this way, which I think is such a great summary. For forgiveness be, to be established within you so that it flows as effortlessly as your breathing, you need to have some mental model of what forgiveness feels like in your memory. Otherwise, your life will feel dry as dust, even if your theology is razor sharp. You have to have some mental model of what forgiveness feels like in your memory. So you can see why God has been very gracious to us in making memory a priority by bringing our implicit and explicit memories into the arena of his presence and his narrative so that the possibilities of forgiveness and healing and restoration and reconciliation and recreation are just endless because he is endless in his mercy. I have saved, of course, the best for last. The consummate expression of remembering is the Eucharist. Jesus is not just an idea or a concept. He is a man. He is God with us. Every Sunday, we engage in a special sort of memory. We take and we eat the bread and the wine in remembrance of me to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We take the bread and the wine in remembrance that Christ died for us and we feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. We're feeling forgiveness. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God encountering us as the apple of his eye and rooting our identities within the context of his love and within the grand context of making all things new. When the Holy Spirit came upon Mary to bring the presence of God into her in a way that had never happened before or since, Mary described it as a personal encounter so that it also connected her with God's plan for Israel. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Let me read those pronouns again, they're important. My spirit, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. He who is mighty has done great things for me. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. How powerful that Mary at her young age was so shaped and formed to integrate her personal experience with her collective identity. This is how God wants to be known, as your Lord and Savior, as God with you, Jesus the Messiah, as the Spirit crying within you, Abba, Father, as the one bringing you into his family, as an heir of the kingdom that he is bringing about forever. He wants you to know it. He wants you to experience it. He wants you to share it. And so as a church, we are cultivating our lives and our community around growing as individuals and as a church family rooted and grounded in the love of God through Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. During our Lenten small groups, we experienced a small taste of engaging with each other around God moments called gratitude memories. Some of you may have experienced just a little bit of that. They're Eucharistic moments, uniting our experience of God with deep gratitude. I hope you can see now why we wanted to do that. I hope you can see that it's just taking a step into a very deep well of joy I could preach 15 sermons on this subject, all different, all unique, not because I'm great and have 15 ideas, but because there's just so much that the scripture has to say about this. I hope you're beginning to realize that we're just dipping our toe in the water here. Gratitude memory is a very simple step that can be taken with very profound impact. Sharing gratitude memories are just one helpful way to unite these dimensions of personal experience with each other to strengthen our bonds of love with one another, to amplify our knowledge of God's presence, to build capacity for inviting many other people into our experience, 
and really for shaping our identity, for grasping and laying a hold of our own stories. How many of us just don't know our own stories because we're just running too fast? Or we're too afraid of what's in the back there. During the summer, we are encouraging ourselves to meet together again in small groups around a dinner table with the express purpose of sharing gratitude memories. You'll be hearing more about this in the days to come, but I want to emphasize that the way we do this is important for the full effect. All right? In oftentimes, as Christians particularly, when we think about gratitude, we think about the things we're thankful for. And that's important. I, I don't want to denigrate that. I'm thankful that my children are healthy, for example, or I'm thankful that I'm employed, and I am very thankful for all of that. That's data. Um, we want to move into a different dimension of gratitude than just saying what we're thankful for. So I don't want to discourage being thankful for things. I think it's important for us to say what we're thankful for often, right? But that's different than what we're doing here. A gratitude memory is feeling forgiven in our memory. So the process here is important, and I don't want to scare anybody. The outcome is going to be about two or three minutes of speaking, all right? So <laughs> this is all very manageable and feasible. However, here are the steps. Don't skip steps. First of all, recall the memory. That's hard. Actually, it's not even really a step, but because I find it so challenging, and I find many people find this challenging, it's actually a step. When you're put on the spot, your memory goes blank, and you're like, I can't think of anything. <laughs> I'm not, I've never been great, you know, <laughs> I've never had anything that happened to me. Um, a gratitude memory can be sublime, and it can be very simple. It can be the birth of your first child. It can be stepping out onto the back porch and feeling the sunshine. Right? The point here is not to try to decide what's the most important thing that ever happened to me. That's too much pressure. Okay? That will actually come over time. I want you to keep a notebook and start to record these things. So, but just think about a moment that you were grateful. Now, there are various flavors of gratitude. I can be very grateful for the sunshine on my face. All right? A really wonderful thing to recall, if you have them, is what I call a connection memory, which is when you actually felt the presence of God deeply. That's a connection. That's worth remembering. Now, don't be shocked if you can't remember that. It's all right. Okay, they're there, but you may have not ever practiced remembering them, and they not, may not be in your explicit memory. It's okay. If you have a connection memory, it's good to bring those back to remembrance. All right, so the first step is just to recall a gratitude memory. Think of a memory in your life for which you are grateful. It can be big or small. It doesn't matter, and here's the important point, as long as you feel grateful when you think about it. You have to feel grateful. That's why being grateful that my children are healthy, I can't get past that because that's not a memory of a particular moment. I have feelings about that, and they're worth praying about and sharing, but that's not a moment. Remembering my son's birth, that's a moment. Remembering my son's wedding moment, that's a moment. I felt something in both of those experiences. 
It's important that we feel gratitude, and it's important that it doesn't overwhelm you or, well, overwhelm others when you're talking about it. And that can apply to both really bad memories and really good ones. Um, I've heard my mother talk about her birth stories, and they're a little uncomfortable for me. <laughs> they're good for her, <laughs> but I'd rather really just not know all those details. My mom's a nurse, so... You just want to keep that sort of thing in mind. And we're still in step one. Give it a two or three word title. For example, Nathan and Sarah's wedding. Meeting Rebecca for the first time. All right, that makes, I can recall it quickly. All right, that's the recalling part. Step number two, you're going to get an email with all this, by the way. Um, step number two, remember. Remember, remembering is remembering. It's putting the members back together. Recollecting is recollecting. It's collecting all the points of it and putting it back together in your mind. In a quiet place, you want to go back into this memory and relive it for a moment like you're back in it. You want to ask yourself questions like these. You don't want to say, what do I think about it? Don't ask that question. That's not going to help you remember what you feel. You want to ask these kind of questions. When you're remembering the moment, ask yourself, what do you feel like in your body? The warmth of the sun on your face. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. It sent chills up and down my spine. I felt a sense of, of relief. I felt like crying. I could feel the tears backing up. All right, that's what you want to recall. How did it feel in that memory? It doesn't matter what you feel as long as you feel something in your body that you can describe. That's step number two. It's just remembering the memory. Step number three, listen. This is actually, I find that a lot of people will just stop at step number two. And by the way, gratitude is super popular right now in secular psychology. All right, everybody's into gratitude to relieve anxiety. And that's great, because it'll do that. The difference between what we're talking about and that is that this is relational, because now we're going to talk to God about it. That's what's different. That's what's Christian. That's what's gospel. Because just simply remembering things doesn't allow the light of the gospel to penetrate and shape our identities. If we don't do the next step, we're not gospel experience. We're just self-experience. Our memories are very garbled, all right? And so it's not just a question of finding something we feel good about. God actually may want to heal something in you through your memory, all right? And if we don't do this next step, it's just a selfish activity, even though it might have positive health benefits, but it's not a gospel activity. God wants to actually say something to you. And you want to ask him. You want to might ask questions like these. Keep them open-ended. What might God be communicating to you through the memory and the emotions you feel? Ask questions like this. Where do you see him? What is he showing you? What is he telling you? I might have a great memory of sitting in the stands at my son's Little League game, and he, he hits the ball, and, you know, he hits a home run. 
All right, I might say I'm very thankful for that and move along, but that's not enough. I can imagine one father sitting there asking, Lord, where are you in, in this? And it might be that the Lord wants to say, I'm sitting right next to you. You know, you are such a busy man, and you made time for this baseball game. I'm so proud of you. You're doing a great job. That's a very different story than Jesus revealing himself out there with your son. Lord, I am so anxious. My kid, is he's, a, he's small. I, I think he's bullied a lot. I'm anxious. I'm worried about him. And Jesus might be saying, you have nothing to worry about. I am with him. Do you see how totally different that same experience would be to two different people with different implicit memories? That's why you can't just draw conclusions on your own. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God wants to share something deeply personal with you about your life and the power of forgiveness and healing and restoration in your stories. That's why you want to be very careful to listen. What is God showing you? You want to recall and remember and listen. Now you want to thank. This is where the Psalms are so helpful as a model. God himself modeling it in our reading in Deuteronomy. Mary modeling it for us in her song. You want to give thanks. My, how does Mary say it so fully? My soul magnifies the Lord. Wow. That's not just thank you for the whatever. This is her soul opening up like a flower to the light of God in her. That's thanksgiving. My soul magnifies the Lord. Verbalize in prayer what you experienced in your gratitude memory. Be very concrete. Say back to the Lord the very things you were saying to yourself about your emotions, about how you feel, about what you see, about what you hear. You will find your soul magnifying the Lord and often that can be a great entree into a deeper prayer life because when your soul's open like that and you're in dialogue with the Lord and you're in full of joy, that's the time when you can say, you know, Lord, I have a question. This memory is like 90% great, but 10% of it is not great. There's a shard of a splinter. There's something in there that I'm afraid of, and I want to ask you about it. That's a great dialogue to have. So this gratitude experience can just enrich your prayer life because it can go off into so many different directions because now you're with God with you. Emmanuel. And then the last step, which we're going to be doing as a congregation, is to share the experience with another person. This is how we strengthen our collective identity. I think you'll find with David that this is really important. David was always saying, I'm going to share my gratitude in the congregation. I think you'll find with David an invitation to discover what we discovered in our psalm reading this morning, that very simple and very powerful Psalm 131, an invitation to calm and quiet our souls 
in the presence of God like a weaned child with its mother. I think you'll find that Mary with God will connect your story to his story in surprising ways. I think you'll find with Paul a passion to see other people experience God's presence.